Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us over Mile High Sports. I'm Sean Trotar, Sandy Clough on my left. Big thanks to uh, Neil Apiro for uh, sitting in yesterday. Fun there, I am sure. But happy to be back. Uh, pivotal Game 3, Sandy, in the NBA Finals. The winner of Game 3, when the series is tied 1-1, to wins the series 80% of the time. Now, commonality is not causality, but at the same time, obviously... I'm surprised it's that low. For, for the Nuggets, it's an important game. And uh, Sopan Deb of the New York Times, the very first line of his story. That's why I left it for uh, you. Yeah, you left it for me. And right off the top, it's great. Michael Malone is generally the kind of coach who would leave a negative Yelp review after vacationing in Shangri-La. Now, it goes on great and, line. and points great out line. that uh, you know some of the worry was warranted. After but it wasn't worry, as we pointed out over the last two days. It was a declaration made by Michael Malone after game one. We did not play well. There's no warning in that. There's no expression of worry in that. It's simply a stupid declaration by a coach who, after a win in the NBA Finals, has never won anything. In which they weren't even really challenged in game one. anything. When his team had a 24-point lead with 32 seconds left in the third quarter and a 21-point lead going to the fourth quarter, saying we did not play well. Blanket statement, no, no breakdown of this is what I liked and this is what I didn't like until yesterday. Until yesterday when... Somebody got to him between uh, the end of the game on Sunday night and his press conference yesterday and told him, one, cool your jets. The players are keeping their poise. Why can't you keep yours? And I hope it was Calvin Booth who got to him and told him to shut the hell up, which Michael Malone seems unable to do in these finals because he so desperately wants the spotlight. The, the one thing that is obvious about these finals, we can talk about any number of angles, uh, ways of analyzing this series. Michael Malone wants the spotlight almost as much as he wants to win this series. And Eric Spolstra, who's actually won two of these right. things, cares little, really not at all, about the spotlight. He's matter-of-fact when he speaks after games or between games at any point in the playoffs over the last 15 years, you can't tell if his team just won by 20, lost by 20, or did something in between. You can't tell if he's up 2-0 or down 0-2. You can't tell that he's up 2-0 against Boston after two wins in Boston. Because he talks the same way. Michael Malone, either through body language or through expression, always seems to be on edge over something. Worried about the future, even though the Nuggets before Sunday night had won seven playoff games in a row. Very hard to do. Even champions don't often win seven games in a row right. in the playoffs. Right. You know, fo-fo-fo wasn't even fo-fo-fo mm-hmm. in 1983. <laughs> right. They lost one game, all right? Uh, that was the Philadelphia 76ers back then. But to say what he said after a win in the finals, first-time experience for Michael Malone coaching at any point for any team in the NBA finals. 
and that's what he comes up with after game one. And then after game two, of course, he blows his stack. And the players are either somewhat rattled by that, depending on their temperament, or they're rolling their eyes. This Every time we lose, he explodes and questions our effort and questions our energy level and commitment and so on and so forth. And it's the, it's the same song. It's his go-to move, and he has one go-to move after losses, and that's it. Um, what no coach that I've ever heard of does is after a win in the NBA Finals, complain that it wasn't good enough, and you win by 11. It was, it was hard, Sandy, to it's envision. It's not like you made a mid-court a shot more, to win right. the game at the buzzer. It's hard to imagine a more, quite frankly, I mean, I guess you, I guess you could imagine it, but a, a better opener for the Nuggets. I mean, they were dominant throughout the game. Really, at no point were they significantly challenged. Uh, the game wasn't really in doubt at any point beyond about the midway spot of the first quarter. And uh, <laughs> while it wasn't a, a perfect game, you it, know, it certainly be, this is this is the trick. It and will you know, do until a perfect game comes along we will through the have, first three quarters. We will have George Carl on later in the program, by the way. And George Carl at times, remember, I had the, uh, the Furious George moniker. And at times was renowned for maybe riding players in the media a little bit hard. Something right. that he's discussed in the past. After they lost or after they didn't perform. After they won, I never remember George going off the way Malone did. Maybe not, I never, maybe not the not, same. Not but once. Malone's not the only coach who does this. But there is a problem at times when you sure have to is. understand. The NBA Finals? Who does what, this? When win a game you complain? can ride guys and when you, you can't. And when you can get on your players and when you can't. Certain times, and Malone has, for the most part this season, pushed all the right buttons. When, you know, sometimes the sugar cube works better than the proverbial carrot, right? And, or a sugar cube carrot, sorry. But they're in the stick. <laughs> My metaphor is mixed up there. But uh, he only Not a horse person, stick. that's a Jokic thing. He only uses the stick. And there's never any sense of, as there is with Spolstra, hey, maybe I screwed up too. That's one of the things Maybe that you'd like up. to see a little bit more. He never does that. It's they played bad, and it's a shame because I coach great. And he didn't coach badly nope. the other night. In fact, uh, the local yokels who are knocking him for not calling timeout I wouldn't have called that are timeout. completely off base. Now, you got a good uh, we'll, look. We'll, have, we'll have George Carl on, yep. and George draws a distinction between being behind by two and being behind by three, but I'll let him explain that in roughly an hour and a half, um, and we'll both be uh, listening to that. But what he did yesterday is what he should have done Sunday night, and frankly, what he should have done last Friday and last Saturday in the days leading up to game number two, and that's say, you know, we're going to show him some fourth-quarter clips. And then we're going to show them some clips from the first three quarters where we're doing things right. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to show them the fourth quarter clips that look nothing like the first three quarter clips. The Nuggets, I know, literally haven't won six of the eight quarters. But when you're talking about a 21-point lead after three quarters in game one, as you've indicated, you feel fairly safe. And when you're talking about Game number two, they're up by eight. You know what they were before Sunday night this year when they were up by at least eight points heading into the fourth quarter? That would be 37-1. and one. Yeah. Okay? So now they're 37-2. and two. 
You know what they were in the playoffs this year when leading by 10 or more points at lose. any stage of the game? They didn't, that they, would be 11-0. Yeah, and 0. They didn't lose. Okay, right. now they're 11-1. and 1. Fourth quarter woes are the only thing in common between game one and game two, and now that seems to be what Malone is talking about. But I think what the players hear, and some of them are more volatile than others, I don't think Nikola Jokic cares or pays any attention to what Michael Malone says, to what Eric Spolster says. I I don't think it affects him at all, and that's why I'm confident that he will dominate the game tonight and that the Nuggets will win game three and recapture home court, even though if they win tonight, that'll be two out of three games won by the visiting team. So home court, maybe the personality of this series, maybe home court doesn't mean very much. But uh, I know from talking to people who have had contact with Nugget assistant coaches, uh, their objective, as they see it, down in Miami is to win a game. They'll take two, obviously. Sure. But the expectation is that they will win one. And I'm not sure which one they're focused on more, game three or game four. Um, I would be focused more on game three. I think game three, if they win it, makes game four a must for Miami. Right. Uh, absolute must. And it gives the Nuggets, maybe for the first time in this series, a chance to relax and you assume if they win tonight that Michael Malone will have no complaints in the postgame. The idea of what Jokic dominating looks like is kind of interesting. The comments today on Get Up on ESPN from Stephen A. Smith were fascinating, and it's something of a contrast when uh, <laughs> after came to um, it, Smith had been sort of less than uh, – uh, kind about Jokic, but then again, as, as I uh, shared earlier with you guys, if, if you live your life by firing off the hot take cannon, it giveth and it taketh away. But today, in a much more subdued for Stephen A. Smith, minus you know a whole bunch of cups of coffee, actually talked a little bit about what Jokic needs to do tonight for the Denver Nuggets, and it is a pretty salient point. I think that if you're Jokic, you got to do 10 assists or more. Here's the reason why. When he scores a lot of points, what happens is is that you you tend to see a bunch of guys around him spectating. You know, Michael Porter was an example of that in game two where he just wasn't um, what he needed to be. Uh, he certainly wasn't offensively aggressive. He wasn't a factor. And that comes back to haunt you because at some point in time, as great as Jokic is, you know, as the game wanes, if he's the one that's been taking most of the shots, then the likelihood of others making shots when it really, really counts down the stretch is going to be diminished drastically. And so because of that, I think it's important for him while he's doing his thing offensively in terms of point production to also not negate the importance of getting others involved and getting their rhythm flowing or what have you, because you're going to need them as the game wanes. It's not an accident that they're 0-3 in the postseason when he scored 40 or more but they're 13-1 and one when he hasn't. That's not an accident. That's a telltale sign of who they are and how they operate uh, when he's uh, getting them involved as opposed to when he's on fire and doing most of the offensive production himself. 
Well, I, I, I will say this. First of all, he acts like he's the first guy to notice <laughs> the one. Jokic scores 40 and more of the Nuggets haven't won yet this year in the playoffs. Okay, we've talked about it 5,000 times. Second of all, even someone with a passing understanding of basketball, and this is exactly what Spolster was talking about the other night, knows that it isn't entirely up to Miami to, quote-unquote, let him score. Right. Uh, and it's also not entirely up to Jokic. It's the umbrellas cause rain theory. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Jokic says, before I score a point tonight, I'm going to get 10 assists because that's a guarantee that will win. Umbrellas don't cause rain. You don't focus on okay, the, the, the number. But the Heat have something to do with his making a choice between becoming a volume shooter and also a volume maker of shots or passing. And the question, which was phrased in the way that I suppose most of us would phrase it, was still phrased the wrong way the other night. And he wouldn't have answered the question had it been put this way, but the right question is, what did you do to take away the pass? Can you imagine anybody saying that about Michael Jordan? Okay. Right. Or even LeBron James. Our sole objective with respect to Jokic is to make it harder for him to pass. He scored 41 and kept the team within a shot at the the buzzer tying. Nobody is letting a star like Jokic score. You're playing with fire. You're not letting him score. You're making him work Hard to score, take maybe harder shots to score, but your main objective is to affect Denver's spacing. That involves how you guard the other four guys and make it harder for him to pass. Take away some of the passing lanes that he would prefer to use because he's a smart player and he'll take the path of least resistance, make passing harder. So I I don't know in that comment that there is anything particularly uh, insightful. Uh, here's the trade-off. Denver scores 1.7 points per possession when Jokic shoots out of the post or dishes to a shooting teammate. And when it's the entire possession, it's almost two points. Almost two. Zero. Right. Okay. Yep. The other night, what I saw was lots of Jokic dribbling into the paint because they weren't affording him the opportunity to set up there. Now, he shoots well out of the post, but if you put him there all the time, you're slowing the game down. Right. And Miami likes that, too. So they'll give up some of those post points in exchange for slowing the game down. What's the response to that? The response to me when Adebayo is fronting Jokic, as often as he seemed to be fronting him in game two, is to lob the ball to Jokic or Gordon 
behind the man who's fronting, who's the only real threat as a shot blocker on the Miami team, and that's Adebayo. What the Heat did brilliantly on Sunday was sort of split the difference between double teaming and staying home. So they took away, depending on how you want to phrase it, the most profitable passing lanes or the easiest passing lanes. And yet when Adebayo wasn't in the game, none of that worked very well. Miami was a minus 16 in the non Adebayo minutes the other night. He was, in my opinion, the best player on the floor, and per minute the best player on the floor the other night was Kevin Love. Plus 18 in 22 minutes. But Adebayo was much better than Jimmy Butler and maybe uh, a little bit better than Gabe Vincent. Their two best players through the first two games have been by far Adebayo and Vincent. Through the first two games. Mm-hmm. Taken sure. together. But game two the other night, Adebayo and Love, who wouldn't have been as effective had he played three minutes more or three minutes fewer. Eric Spolstra used him in exactly the right way. He started him. He played him a little more perhaps than he anticipated because Love was doing such a good job at both ends, making smart decisions. Oh, by the way, 10 rebounds in 22 minutes. He was the best rebounder on the floor in the game on Sunday night. Better than Jokic, who needed a lot more minutes to get 11. Uh, Better than Adebayo, who had nine in more minutes. Uh, This is brilliant coaching by Spolstra, who always keeps his cool against a coach who seems always to be on edge in these finals so far. And I think it's the demeanor of Malone rather than the X's and O's of Malone. Uh, The demeanor is what we should be watching for tonight. Want to know what you think as well? The Colin text line is 303-831-1340. couple quotes from the Miami Heat prior to the series actually sort of may have tipped you off as to what the plan might be. We talked about it in game one, how Eric Spolster would probably kind of spend some time experimenting, and then he put that into play in game two. So we'll hear from some of the Heat's own words as to what they had planned and how the Nuggets can counter it. We'll do that next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Prior to game one of the NBA Finals, the Heat were asked specifically about Nikola Jokic and the challenges in guarding him. And here's what Jimmy Butler said at the time, guarding him as a team with all five guys. He does everything so well. We're going to have to be in the gaps. We're going to have to gang rebound. We can't have defensive lapses. We're going to have to get after it. At the end of the day, he's a major key. We're going to have to lock in. Now, that's a little obvious. But Adebayo was a little more specific. And see if this rings a bell a couple of games later. Because this, by the way, was prior to game one. Force him into tough shots and live with the result. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing for me. 
I feel that this is one of those series where he becomes very dangerous when he let his teammates get involved. He makes those incredible passes and ends up with 12 assists. The challenge here for the Nuggets, and there, look, there's a lot of reasons, I think, to be bullish about this. Uh, the, The Nuggets did play flat. They had terrible defensive lapses. Michael Porter Jr. had his worst game of the season at the worst possible time. And the Nuggets lost by three because Jamal Murray's pretty good look didn't fall. No. Yeah. It, it, it was yeah. not a, a disaster. This, they didn't get blown out by 20. Miami shot, you know, lights out for a, for, for part of this game. They have been on the, on the most part doing what they're doing. They're passing uh, on close shots. They're doing kind of what, what Phoenix did, but even to a bigger extreme. They shoot even fewer shots from inside the restricted area than Phoenix. Only 17% for Miami. Right. 26% was Phoenix. Yeah. And uh, Miami doesn't get the transition points that the Phoenix did. So Denver, to an extent, has seen this. And mm-hmm. the the shift for Kevin Love starting the game altered things. Adebayo has been outstanding in this series. Yep. He has been better than Anybody. That's why Butler said more credentialed people that they went through. He's been better than DeAndre Ayton, who was a number one but, overall pick. He's been better than Carl Anthony Towns, who's a number one pick, or Rudy Gobert, yeah, three time yeah. defensive player. Obviously, better than obviously. Davis. He's been better than everybody. As we predicted before the series began, that he would be. And, and people scoffed. But we said before the series began, he'd be better than Davis. He'd be better than Ayton. He'd be better than Towns or Gobert. He would be much better. Much but I don't better. think people he's had him at always been able to score against, against Jokic. He's always been able to score against Jokic. He's not doing anything against Jokic that he hasn't done. Jokic is not going to make any all-defensive teams. Everybody knows that. Adebayo has always scored against Jokic, and yet Jokic always outplays him, and the Nuggets, at least coming into the series, uh, had a pretty good record. Uh, I think it was 11-2 and with Jokic in the lineup against the Miami Heat all-time. 11-2 and mm-hmm. with Jokic. Um, now it's 12-3. and um, what, what Jimmy Butler said the other day was interesting. And what Spolster said that Adebayo was sacrificing <laughs> was interesting too, because it was right on the mark. And you don't hear as much talk of the Nuggets sacrificing. Uh, you hear weird things like Jamal Murray saying after the first two games are split, oh, we got to stay together. Literally a statement I have never heard from any player in any sport after the first two games of a series are split. Oh, we got to stay together. Now, I I guess if you're down 0-2, you might say that. You certainly wouldn't say it up 2-0 or tied 1-1, but Murray said it the other night because he was parroting what Malone in his panic, rage-filled state had said after the game. And, And Malone is right about one thing. What I say to the media, I've already said to the players. I believe him on that because we've seen the clips to prove. So he is being truthful on that point. But I, I think we, we can talk about all kinds of things. We, we can even talk about the silly notion that the zone has kept Denver from scoring. Denver's had 36 possessions in the series against the zone. They're averaging 1.2 points per possession against the zone. But the zone is is akin to a press. The point mm-hmm. of a yep. press is not always to steal the ball or even to cut off scoring completely. It's to make the opponent more uncomfortable. It's to disrupt them. 
they'll take the one, two uh, points per possession, 1.2. They'll take that. But it is unsettling to certain nuggets. When Jokic was asked yesterday about the zone, he he gave a great answer. First of all, he said, I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you anything about how we're going to attack the zone or how I'm going to attack the zone? One. Two, he said, you know, zones can force you into bad shots and man-to-man defense can force you into bad shots. In other words, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference to me what they do. I read the defense. Every defense has a counter. I don't care if it's a zone or a man-to-man. I read the defense. But it does have an effect on the Michael Porters of the world who find still that it's more comfortable to stay on the perimeter and fling up shots. And when those shots aren't going in, Michael Porter is still not a mature enough player to prevent it from affecting his defense. So the the other game one, everything was going so well, and the only fly in the ointment was Murray and Porter going four for 18 from three-point land, but it really didn't make any difference. The Nuggets were scoring so easily anyway, it didn't matter. Uh, Porter got his 14 points and certainly his 13 rebounds. The other night, when he missed early, it seemed to take the rest of his game and basically squash it. And he seemed at best indifferent to playing defense, and he disappeared from the rebounding area as well. He didn't – that's how the zone psychologically sure. can have an effect, and we can talk about all the X's and O's and all the moves and counter moves. This is now, as Dr. Rick Perea suggested the other day, a neck-up series, right. and the Nuggets are going to have to deal with it. And I, and I talked about this before the series, and we said Michael Porter Jr. is the most important X factor on this team, and I, I believe it because in Game 1 he was plus 20, leading the team in plus-minus. In Game 2 he was worst, minus 15. Some of this with Porter Jr., and this involves a larger part with Malone to a certain extent. You brought it up with Jamal Murray. I've talked about this before, especially in basketball. For coaches in basketball, X's and O's are great. Managing your timeouts is great. But the winning coaches do a better job of understanding they have 15 guys. You have to get to know each and every one of them, and you have to coach them differently for their own personality. Michael Porter Jr. has improved his game. But when he is involved early in the game, he keeps his focus better. Now, the Heat see that like everybody sees that. If I can see that, I guarantee you Eric Strolster sees it. He keeps his focus better when he's involved early in the game. Yes, like many players, when his shot's not falling, he can get discouraged. But when he's involved early in the game, he tends to be focused. There has to be a concerted effort at times to involve him in the game. That's right now just the way that Michael Porter Jr. plays. That's his personality. In Jamal Murray's case, I've talked about this all year. Jamal Murray's a phenomenal player. But Jamal Murray has a tendency. It is just his personality. That when the Nuggets do not seem to be going well, when his teammates don't seem to be hitting shots, Jamal Murray's instinct is, I need to take the ball a game over. I need the ball. I'm going to get us back into the game. He tries to lift too much. He's Atlas putting the world on his shoulder. That's his personality. In Jokic's case, look, he's he's drama-free, right? Jokic shows up, does his job. Uh, you and I could coach him, Sandy. Everyone out there listening, you could coach Nicole Jokic. Hey, Jokic, here's the ball. Go get him, champ. Great. But certain players, and particularly Porter and Murray, are guys that respond better 
to encouragement than discouragement. Some players are not like that. Some guys do better when they're getting yelled at. Some guys, that's how it gets through to them. And we can talk about that with George Carl later in the program. But in, in a basketball situation with a small roster and an understanding that only a few guys really play at this point of the series, the necessity in which you need to coach to these guys' personalities becomes critical. And so when Malone paints with a broad brush, like you pointed out in the first segment, Sandy, it is okay to say, hey, you know what? We're really happy with the result in game one. The guys came out and played hard. Uh, we deserve that win, and they should be proud of themselves. We want to tighten some stuff up in the fourth, in the fourth quarter. You know, we can't rest on our laurels yeah. there, but but I'm proud of the way we performed. We'll, we'll tighten things up, and we'll, we'll, we'll be take, ready for game we'll two. We'll take three more just like it. That's a different statement, right? The, the blanket a statement. A very different statement. Everybody didn't work hard enough. Well, that's not true. Well, Certain guys did, uh, uh, and, now, and certain guys did play the whole it time. It was even more general than that, though. It was, we did not play well. Which is simply not the case. And that wasn't For the true. majority of the game, they played brilliantly, including Murray, including Porter. And they got a little bit lazy, as human nature tends to do when you have a big lead, and they relaxed. Now, it's okay to just say that. We were great. In the first three quarters, this looked like the kind of Nuggets basketball we want to play. In the fourth quarter, we need to make sure we tighten things up, and we'll be fine. But you don't necessarily take a win in the NBA Finals in the first appearance for all of these guys except Jeff Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and then immediately throw cold water on what should be a thrilling, exciting, confidence-building game. That was a mistake, my Malone. And you inject a negative energy and into the room and some doubt, even about the coach himself. And I mean, how credible can a coach be when he complains after a win in the NBA Finals? I've never heard a coach do that in my life. I've been watching NBA basketball uh, for close to 60 years, and I've never heard a coach do that. I've watched every NBA Finals series uh, going back to the first one I remember watching was probably 65 when the Celtics played the Lakers. And then the next year, uh, played the Lakers again. And, I, you know, it was the Sunday game of the week when it wasn't Russell versus Wilt. It was Russell versus West and Baylor, Russell and uh, a host of other stars. But I've never heard a coach say that after game one. Um, the smartest move I ever saw came in 66 in the NBA Finals when Red Auerbach after game one of the finals, the Lakers came into the old Boston Garden and beat the Celtics in game one. You know what Auerbach did? He announced his retirement from coaching after the game. Guess which story got the headlines the next day? Was it Lakers beat Celtics and take 1-0 lead? Or was it Auerbach retires as the greatest coach in the history of major professional sports at that time. Auerbach got the headlines. He could have announced his retirement after the series, before the series, any old time. You think it was just coincidence that they happened to lose the game? And funny how these crazy coincidences work. Auerbach announces his retirement after the game. Right. That's his post game. It isn't. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. We gave away home court advantage. It's gloom and doom. And Auerbach was tough on his players. No, Auerbach said, 
you know what? I'm going to announce my retirement. That'll get the headlines. He could control the media. Malone isn't that smart or maybe that manipulative. <laughs> maybe that's a good thing. But when you say something that's demonstrably false, then where do you go after you, in fact, do, do play poorly and you lose in the fourth quarter for the first time in these playoffs when you bat a 10-point lead at some point during the game and for only the second time all year you against 37 wins, you lose a game in the fourth quarter that you led going into the quarter by eight points uh, or more. You, you've got to, as they say, read the room better than that. And it, 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 there's all kinds of junk that ends up on bulletin boards. But I think it's the stuff that players internalize that makes more of a difference than something that gets And you have two players on, on this team bulletin board. in particular, and it is not a criticism because you will find players with all sorts of different personalities in every sport all over the place all the time. But in basketball, when eight guys are playing in total, it is an outsized impact than if one of the guys who's in your rotation on the defensive line has that same personality. Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray are not guys that do well when they're being yelled at. Simply put, they are guys that needs the they need the pats on the bottom when they're good or when they're bad. They need encouragement. That's the kind of people they are. Not players. Players, that part's irrelevant. That's the kind of people they are. And the fact that at this stage, Malone, who has, for the most part, pressed the right buttons with these guys. Porter, in particular, now falls back into one of the worst habits that he has, which, for lack of a better term, I, I, I hesitate to stress it that much, but you might be right. Panic, nervousness, whatever it is, falls back into an old habit. These guys were your number two and three scorers in the regular season. The truth of the matter is not saying you, you you can't coach them. You can't tell, but you have to use positive reinforcement, not just yell at them. That's obvious. And when you call them out in the media, you can talk to players all the time, and George Carl can talk about this. Calling out players in the media and calling out players in the locker room are totally different things because they know what's in that locker room often stays there. When you call people out in the media, and you didn't mention Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray by name, but it doesn't really matter because oh, you know they're starters. I, I wouldn't and, even say he was they, talking about Murray. And they internalize. But, he was talking about Porter but you the know other what? night and only Porter. But Murray can internalize that too. Oh, I agree. And and that's what provoked the Murray to comment. say after the game, oh, we got to stay together. And it's like, you're 1-1. You, you, uh, who's suggesting as the head coach? Who's suggesting that you're being pulled apart? You can't unless your coach is doing. Get that. in the head of your number two and number three best players. Opponents couldn't do it this whole playoffs. The coach got into Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray's heads. Now we got to figure out how they're going to spin out of it in Game Three. Be very interesting to see how it shakes out. We will talk more about this when we're back on My Life Sports. This 
is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. You know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about this series thus far, Sandy, that is a bit of a surprise to, I think, a lot of people, something I've made the argument to the NBA for literally decades, which I've covered this league. Adam Silver's approach to try to slowly turn the giant tanker <laughs> is the NBA's uh, ship and understand that it will function a little bit better like the NFL with parity, right? And it was, oh, no, you lost the Lakers and the Celtics. Well, last year was the Warriors and the Celtics. San Francisco versus Boston. Two of the biggest markets in America. Two of the more dedicated fan bases, you know, renowned teams with histories. uh, Great players, top to bottom, stars everywhere. The ratings haven't dipped at all between the Nuggets and the Heat. It's essentially the same. And further proof for the NBA that much like the NFL, it's okay. You can take off after, after what? 60 years, I think the NBA, you can take off the training wheels. You don't need to have the Celtics or the Lakers or the Bulls or something in every finals. Turns out it's okay, right? Uh, when you vary the in, the entertainment around your league and you expose different teams to different markets, especially given the fact that you have a global product and a lot of people across the globe don't care if it's Denver or Boston. They're just somewhere in America. They don't care. First of all, uh, Serbians don't count the ratings, but you don't right. think they are watching in the middle of the night? You don't think of the NBA is tracking are. it on whatever internet apps right. they're going to use? Of uh, course absolutely. they are. Absolutely. And, and you're exactly right. It doesn't matter. And Just start, I, I, you know, parody is good for the NBA. It, it's good. It's too early to make a judgment on how compelling this series will turn out to be after just two games. But... Uh, but everyone was complaining this was think, DOA before it started well, because, oh, yeah, it's Denver Heat. Who's going to watch that? That I turns mean, out my, the exact number of people that was, that wanted Celtics and Warriors. Well, I didn't think Boston-Golden State was an electrifying series last year. But the NBA loves the idea of big markets, big markets. Well, well, that's been the crutch. I don't think Silver's into that. No, I don't think Adam Silver is either. I think Adam Silver understands. Well, Silver's the NBA. Right, I, he is I, now. The commissioner is the NBA. He is now. It, well, he's always been since he took over from right. Stern. Stern made the commissioner uh, the, right. the all-powerful, all-knowing figure. But the, the grooves figure. in the road run pretty Silver deep. Silver has a Stern different left. personality yes. and a different style and probably a different set of preferences. What Stern did helped grow basketball in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and the Dream Team set the stage for the internationalization of the game in no the question. 1990s. Stern was a big part of that Mm -hmm. i was much more impressed with stern who was very intent on being on the job one year longer than pete rosell was so he could say (laughs) i'm all time the longest serving commissioner but for basically 15 years at the beginning stern was excellent um i thought he was something less than that his last 15 years um kind of the anti-bud selig who was awful and then got to be a little more palatable <laughs> in the second half of his uh, reign as as commissioner. Uh, he, he didn't do as many flagrantly stupid things countering uh, the so-called best interests of baseball uh, as he had done during his first, I think he, he was on the job 14 years, uh, something like that, 14 or 15. And anyway, he, you know, he was fine. Uh, at the end, uh, not very good at the beginning, and that included the strike, of course, uh, that can be 90, 95% blamed on him. The, the steroids, 
90 to 95% of it is blamed on him. Yeah, the union was ridiculous, too, in the positions they took, but he looked the other way uh, on that. In any case, I think Silver, Silver's first act is to get rid of Donald Sterling. And yes, that that was a statement in and of itself. Something that Stern had many chances to do and never did. Correct. Correct. And Stern knew all about mm-hmm. Donald Sterling uh, even before all the public yeah. stuff came out of what. If you listen to me for any stretch of time, you realize my, my fondness for Donald uh, David Stern is minimal. For I, I, I understand yeah. that, and I understand he's had an impact, but he, he's he's had an impact, largely a good one. Behind the scenes, um, it, it's funny for someone who was so smart to be so insecure that he had to uh, run roughshod over people. And uh, I, I think it is fair to say uh, he was always in the Shaq O'Neal camp of coaches are interchangeable, make no difference whatsoever. And, uh, Silver, I think, has a little more respect for all the elements of basketball, including the coaching, um, certainly including ownership. He established that right away, that you couldn't act the fool and remain an NBA owner. And I I think he's dealt with the players, obviously, far more effective than uh, Stern did, especially at the end when Stern seemed always at war with the Players Association. Right. And there were work stoppages, lockouts, and the like. But I think there is a recognition that, you know, there are probably certain markets that wouldn't do well for the NBA finals, but NBA ratings for the finals are fine when San Antonio was in there. Right. Right. I mean, there there was the... Now, now, Uh, if San Antonio Antonio was a heavy favorite and swept the series... Yeah, the ratings by game three or game four would be down from what they were in game one, let's say. But this isn't turning into that kind of series. Um, I still like the Nuggets in five. Uh, But if it went six or even seven, I would not be shocked, of course, uh, because I think if it does become almost exclusively a series played from the neck up rather than the neck down, Mm -hmm. That's a big edge for Miami and gives them a chance to extend the series and maybe even a better chance than we anticipated going in of winning the series. Uh, I'm not going there yet. And in this case, having the extra day, uh, there's going to be no fatigue factor. And uh, I'll say this right now. If the game is at all close or in doubt throughout the second half, if Nikola Jokic comes out of the game, uh, I will be throwing various objects at the (laughs) TV screen uh, because there's no reason that Nikola Jokic shouldn't play at least 45 minutes tonight. They've had extra days between game one and game two and game two and game three. There is no reason that he can't virtually go the distance tonight. It's interesting to me, too, when you look at this idea with the ratings, too, that the, the demographic that has gone down from, from the year to last is in the 50 and up group. The demographic that skyrocketed in this 
is 18 to 34. That's so the if, audience if, they want to grow. If Adam Silver wants evidence that fresh faces and new blood and parody works, it's this. Okay, the people that turned away a little bit went, oh, it's not San Francisco versus Boston. I'm out because that's what I'm used to. And the younger people who, by the way, like new, guess right. what they liked? They tuned in. The ratings for 18 to 34, Sandy, had a 45 share. Now, what that means simply is the adults under 35 watching on television, obviously, there's different ways of doing it, 45%. Yeah. We're tuned into that game. Uh, the the freshness, the newness, if right. you will. They like it. It benefits. Like it. So that at least is good news for the NBA going forward, especially well, for markets like Denver that have traditionally well, been kind of behind the eight ball. When I describe uh, fans or media people, and I suppose I'd describe myself this way as a purist, being a purist isn't limited to being older than 50. No, all right? not at all. Those from 18 to 34 can be purists too. Mm-hmm. They might have a definition of uh being purist that's different from mine, but in this case, it's probably identical. Because I like it from a purist perspective because, one, it's new, and, two, it's Jokic and Butler, who, to me, are very interesting and compelling players uh, to watch, and obviously the 18-34 to audience agrees with that and finds uh, Jokic in particular, who's unquestionably the best player in this series, and one of the greatest playoff performers of all time, Good for the 18 to 34-year-olds who have a sense of history and a real appreciation for Jokic, knowing that there's never been any player like him playing almost exclusively uh, below the rim. Uh, I just compared real quick Jokic's scoring with the playoff scoring of some of the all-time greats in the game. There are three players who scored more than Jokic did in the playoffs. Jordan, LeBron, who's still playing, and Jerry West. Those are the three guys. Wilt isn't even within, well, he's within five points, barely. all-time scorer. Wilt's all-time playoff scoring average. No, not all-time scoring average. Playoff average. 22.5, Jokic 27.5. So only three all-time greats in the playoffs have scored more than Jokic. Uh, the guys who have out-rebounded Jokic in the playoffs are Wilt, Russell, Elgin Baylor, Nate Thurman, and Dave DeBuscher. I know that's every single it. one of those guys. That's the list. <laughs> the guys with more assists in the playoffs on a per-game basis are Oscar and magic. I'd continue, but the list ends there. <laughs> well, Nicole and nobody's going to catch magic who averaged 12.3 assists in the playoffs, but can Jokic catch Oscar? Absolutely. Oscar averaged 8.9 assists. Jokic at 7.4. And this year at 10.1 in the playoffs. He will, if he plays long enough and gets into at least as many playoff games as he's already been in, he'll pass Oscar, too. And it'll be Magic and Jokic 
as the playmaking leaders of all time in the playoffs. Well, you just heard those numbers from Sandy. And, of course, you know, over at our friends at Superbook, you can pick all those kind of things if you'd like. So bring that big, bad energy this summer with Superbook Sports. Superbook Sports the most trusted name in sports betting. And right now, use promo code MILEHIGH to score up to $250 with their first bet bonus. That means win or lose, they'll match your first bet up to $250 with the promo code MILEHIGH. So simply visit Superbook.com. For terms and conditions, or download the Superbook Colorado app in the app stores. Enter the promo code Mile High, and you'll get two hundred and fifty bucks, courtesy of Superbook Sports. Gambling problem? Call one 4700 As we pointed out before, the winner of Game Three in a one-one NBA Finals goes on to win the series eighty percent of the time. Here to break it down with a little bit more will be Tyler King of the Denver Gazette. He will join us next on Mile High Sports. <laughs> 